Well, good morning. Happy Easter. This is exciting. Uh, my name's Kevin Norcross. I'm the pastor of Next Generation and Outreach, and just looking forward to sharing God's word with you today. We're going to do things a little different today. Uh, I really wanted to preach today. Corey really wanted to preach today, and Neil really wanted to preach today. So rather than arm wrestle in the office, we decided to share. So today, how it's going to go is uh, we're going to walk you through uh, John chapter 20. So I'm going to start, and then Neil's going to come up, and Corey's going to bring us home. And then Starting next week, uh, we're going to continue on in the, our series on the book of Mark. And each of us will, will speak each Sunday, uh, continuing through the book of Mark. And we're really, really looking forward to that. Um, but for today, the, uh, the topic is the resurrection of Christ. And we're celebrating Easter Sunday. People are gathered all over the world to celebrate Easter Sunday. Some people in churches just like this one, some in cathedrals with stained glass windows, some people are gathering in, in small makeshift huts, and some people are gathering in, in their living rooms undercover in uh, underground churches. But they're, they're gathering to celebrate what Jesus has done for us. Um, Jesus' victory over death, sin, and the grave. And uh, that's why we're here today. So here's a little bit of overview that leads up to John chapter 20. Um, many people were gathering in Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. Um, on Palm Sunday, we learned that Jesus entered into Jerusalem on the donkey. Then he and his disciples shared the Passover meal together. Then Jesus was crucified on the cross. He died. And he was, he was put in a tomb, in a cave with a, a stone that rolled over it, and he was wrapped in cloth. And you're going to hear throughout the message today many different accounts of different people and their firsthand experience to what happened uh, on this day. And our prayer today for you is that uh, just as they were impacted by what was happening, our prayer is that you would be impacted by what's happening. This isn't just some story of some random thing that happened years ago. No, this is real and God has a plan for your life and he wants to have an impact on you today. Jesus impacted people back then and he wants to impact you today. So I encourage you even now to open your heart and say, God, impact me today. Have influence in my life today. So this is the backdrop. We're going to read um, John chapter uh, 20. It's in, if the Bible's in front of you, it's page 768. And I'm just going to read the first few verses. Here's what it says. Early on, the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went up to the tomb and saw the stone that had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb. And we don't know where they have put him. So first of all, what stands out to me is early in the morning. You see, Mary, the night before, they had been with Jesus and he, when he was crucified. And so they were, they were grieving. They were feeling the agony of Jesus no longer being with them. And it says early in the morning, Mary went to the tomb because she just wanted to be near the body of Jesus. Imagine the desperation in Mary's heart. Imagine the questions, imagine the grieving, imagine the, what is going on here? Jesus is no longer with us. See, we know the rest of the story. We know why we're here today. We know what we're, why we're celebrating. But for these people who were experiencing it firsthand, they were figuring it out as they went. And at this point, all they knew is Jesus was dead. 
All Mary knew is that she was sad and she was grieving. And so she went to the tomb right away, first thing to be there, to be close to Jesus' body. And she went to grieve. She went to cry and weep and try and make sense of it all. Imagine the mix of emotions and thoughts that have been going on inside of Mary. The shock, the panic, the excitement, the fear, the worry, all happening all at once. It says she arrived at the tomb and the stone was rolled away from the entrance. And what did she do? She ran. She ran back to get some of the other disciples. She, she said, something's not right. Something's happening. And she ran back thinking that someone had taken Jesus' body. Again, for, for Mary and for John and for Peter, this was all happening real time in front of them. So let's read verse 3 to 5. So Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb. Both were running. But the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over, looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. So Peter and John ran. And the Bible says that John outran Peter and he got to the tomb first. Perhaps he was a better athlete or perhaps he ate his Wheaties that morning, but for whatever reason, he got there first. Maybe it was out of this passion and this desire. I got to get there. I got to get there. I got to find out what's going on and what's happening. And it says, John didn't go in. He stopped at the entrance of the tomb and he saw the linen lying there on the ground. Imagine again, what it would have been like for him in his mind and his emotions. He would have got there. He... He would have been overwhelmed with grief and with sorrow. He would have arrived because he ran so fast. He would have been out of breath. The adrenaline would have been going. What has happened to Jesus? But in the midst of that, there began to be this glimmer of hope. This glimmer of there might be something more going on. And it began to take birth inside of his heart. He was cautious to go in because there still might be a body inside. But he would have began to question hmm, something's going on here. This isn't normal. He would have seen the linens on the ground and said, where is Jesus? Has someone taken him? Let's finish off these last few verses. Six to 10. Then Simon Peter, who was behind him, arrived and went into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there as well as the burial cloth that had been around Jesus' head. The cloth was folded up by itself, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. So it says that Peter went in. Peter, the slowpoke, went into the tomb. He finally got there. He would have been totally confused and bewildered as well. All this was so happening so fast and they're trying to decipher it in real time. But he went in and he saw the linens on the ground and there's significance to this. It says he saw the head covering. He saw that the linen was set aside. He didn't know it, but Jesus had put it there. Remember, they were wondering, was Jesus' body taken? Did robbers come in and take it away? But if Jesus' body was stolen, the robbers would have probably taken the linen with him because they could have sold that as well. Or if his body would have been stolen, the robbers would have ripped the linens that the, the body was wrapped in and just shoved it to the side. But it says they were folded neatly and placed beside. 
So when he saw those linens neatly stacked, his mind would have started shifting from his body's been stolen to he's not here. Jesus isn't here. Where is he? There would have been a change in his mind um, and, and his emotions would have started to shift from worry and fear uh, and he would have begun to, to feel hope and excitement and what if. And his reaction must have stirred something inside John who is still outside because it said John came in and he believed. John saw what Peter saw and he believed. Through faith, he believed. Perhaps he would have began to remember some of the things that Jesus had spoken earlier. John eleven twenty five. 25, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. Or perhaps he thought of John 16, 22. It says, so with you, now is your time of grief, but I will see you again and you will rejoice and no one will take away your joy. You see, even though he was sad, confused, burdened, and overwhelmed by life's circumstances, there was a glimmer of hope and faith that was building up inside of him. Some of you are here today, uh, perhaps you're unsure about this Jesus. Perhaps you're unsure about Christian faith. Perhaps you're unsure of what Easter represents. We are so glad that you're here. Perhaps you're here for a family tradition or you're here because someone invited you or you came for the animals and ended up in the seat here. We're so glad you're here. Our prayer for you today <clears throat> is that just as this faith and hope was building inside these people back then, our prayer is that that hope would begin in your heart and stir in your heart and begin to make sense. Because this gospel message, this message of Jesus, isn't just an old fairy tale. It is alive and it is well and it is for you today. I can't imagine what they must have been going through back then. The thought and the possibility and the hope that Jesus might actually be alive would have, would have begun to take seed in their hearts. And they would never, ever forget this. Then it says the disciple, Mary stayed at the tomb, but it says the two disciples went back to tell the others. I'm assuming they walked because they're a little bit tired of running by now, but they went back and they told the disciples. Neil's going to come up and, and keep the story going, but again, you're going to hear accounts of different people and the experiences they had firsthand and how it impacted them. And our prayer for you today is that you would be impacted by this gospel story, the power of the cross, and that you would be impacted today by it. So Peter and John leave, and now Mary is at the tomb all by herself. And uh, Mary is very distraught. Uh, we look at the next few scriptures. Uh, so she stood outside of the tomb, and she's crying, and, and she, she wept. Like, she's distraught. There's so many tears and just so much sadness and what is happening. And as she looks over into the tomb, she sees something. She sees two individuals uh, that are there. And these two individuals are, are, have sat down where Jesus' body was laid. Now for Mary to see this, she thought they were just two regular people. When in fact, what Mary saw was really two angels dressed in white, seated where Jesus' body had been laid. One at the head and the other at the foot. And this is the first time in scripture that we actually see angels actually sitting uh, somewhere. 
And there is some significance to this because when you look at the Old Testament, and the Old Testament is what is the Bible that Jesus would have read. It's, it's the Bible that Mary would have read. It was the Bible that the disciples and the followers of Jesus would have read. And in the Old Testament, when God spoke to Moses, God told Moses to create something called the Ark of the Covenant. It was this wooden uh, chest and and on top of that, there was this something called the mercy seat where the temporary presence of God would be. And on either side were carved angels. And what's interesting here is that you have two angels and in the middle was the temporary place where Jesus was. This was temporary. Jesus was never supposed to be in the tomb forever, but he rose from the dead. And how fitting it is that we see this imagery take place 2,000 years ago. And then the angels um, start talking to her. And they say to her, woman. Now this woman is, when they say that's out of respect. Uh, unlike today, if you say to somebody, hey woman, it may not come out too well. But this is out of respect, woman. And they ask her this question. Why are you crying? Why are you so sad? And she, Mary responds. And she says, you know, they have taken my Lord away. And she is so saddened about this. And, and she's like, I do not know where they put him. I, I don't know where, where they put Jesus in. And this is really unfair because Jesus died on a cross. He was convicted of doing something that was wrong, which he never did. And they crucified him. And now somebody has stolen his body. This is, this is not right. Where, where did they put Jesus and as she is speaking, um, she turns around as she finishes the statement and she sees another individual. Now remember, Mary is distraught and she doesn't know what's going on, you know, full of depression, like just, just depressed. Her eyes are probably swollen because she's been crying so much and she didn't realize it, but there was another person that was there when she turned around and this person was actually Jesus. But she didn't recognize that it was Jesus that was there just because of the situation that she is in. She is just depressed. And then this person then, who is Jesus to us, but for her, she had no idea who he was at the time, asks her the similar question. It says, woman, again, out of respect of who she is, why are you crying? Who is it that you are looking for? Mary thought that he was just the gardener. Who else is going to be in the tomb at that time, except for the gardener that's going to be there? And she says, sir, if you carried him away, please tell me, tell me where you have put him, and, and I'm going to go and I will get him. Not thinking that, you know, Jesus' body would probably be really heavy for her to take and transport. But, but she's desperate. Where, where is he? Where is Jesus? Please, if you know where he is, please, please tell me where he is. And then something beautiful happens in what we see in the next verse, in verse 16. Jesus said to her, Mary. He calls her by name. He calls her by name. There is something when God calls you by name. You know, God knows your name. And God knows you. And immediately, Mary recognizes this person because of his voice. Of his voice. Now, earlier in the book of John, Jesus is compared to the good shepherd and, and, and he talks about the sheep and, and we are the sheep. This is what Jesus said in John 
10. He says this, my sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. And here is the beautiful part of this. I give them eternal life and they shall never ever perish. No one, no one will snatch them out of my hands. Jesus knows her name. Jesus knows her. Jesus knows our name. Jesus knows us and he calls us every single time. And he calls us wanting a relationship with us. So she turns around and she's so excited that she cries out in Aramaic. She calls him Rabboni, which means teacher. Right now, she was distraught, she was saddened, but she is full of great joy. Why? Because Jesus, Jesus is alive. He is no longer in the tomb. He is alive. He's come back. You know, a few months ago, I, I went on this course uh, up in Barrie, and, uh, and I had to be away from my family about two days, and I hate being away from my family. I'm the type of person, I'm a homebody. I like to be at home with my wife and with my kids. So in the morning, I said goodbye to my kids uh, and my wife, and I went all the way up to this conference. So I didn't have a chance that day to connect with my little guy, who's, who's three years old at the time, uh, to say, you know, hi, how are you? How's the day going? Just connect with him. I only had that chance with the older two boys and my wife. Uh, the conference was getting very busy, and then the next day, I just couldn't connect. The Wi-Fi wasn't working well, and, you know, time passed by, and then it's time to leave the conference, so I'm going as fast as I can back home because I don't want to miss bedtime because I love being there for bedtime. And I'm like, okay, I'll put my little one, you know, to bed. But I was late. I, I, I just didn't make it on, on, in on time. Well, the next morning, you know, it's, uh, it's you know, five o'clock in the morning, and my little guy does not know time. And he comes into our room in stealth mode, okay? And then he comes into the bed with me and my wife. And he's really good at it. He screws his way in. He doesn't realize I'm home. So then he's, you know, saying, Mom, Mom, Mom. And then I said to him, I said, I called his name. I said, Bryson. He goes, Daddy? Dad, you're home, you're back, you're back. He comes over and, and he's like grabbing my neck, hugging my neck, I could hardly breathe, you know. And then, and then he said, you're back? He said, yes, of course I'm back. I will always come back. And that is what Mary was feeling. It's like, Jesus, you came back. And, and Mary's holding on to Jesus so much that Jesus says, do not hold on to me. For there's lots of things to happen for I'm not ascended to the Father. And Jesus gives her this great command, go, go. Jesus says incredible things in this scripture. He says, he said, go to my brothers, referring to the disciples. This is the first time he called, considers his disciples my brothers. And then he says, tell them I am ascending to my Father and your Father, my God and your God. This is significant because we are all brothers and sisters with Christ, that we are all the sons and daughters of a great God that loves us so much. And Mary is so happy at what is happening. And then she has this great opportunity to go and tell the disciples what has happened. And in the next verse, she has the opportunity to be the very first one who saw the resurrected Jesus to say, I have seen the Lord. 
And she told them all that had happened. You know, this passage of scripture is very important. There's a couple of things that I want you to know about the scripture. First is this, Jesus knows your name. Jesus knows you, calls you, and wants to have a relationship with you. The second thing is Jesus is unconditional love. Unconditions. There's no condition to the love that he has for us. And the incredible thing about Mary seeing the resurrected Jesus is this. Jesus didn't reveal himself to a king, to a governor, to a magistrate, to a person very high in position, but he revealed himself as a resurrected Jesus to a woman in a society that demeaned women. He chose to reveal himself to a woman. And with God, it doesn't matter if you're a woman or a man. It doesn't matter to him. It doesn't matter if you're young or old. He wants to have a relationship with you. It doesn't matter what your cultural background is or is not. It doesn't matter what your race is or is not. It doesn't matter what your background is or is not. But God wants to give you his unconditional love through Jesus Christ so he can have a relationship with you. Always remember those two things as we go into the next part of Scripture. Jesus knows your name, and he is unconditional love. This, what we celebrate, the resurrection of Jesus, is God's love for you. It is the central message of the Christian faith, the event of the resurrection. C.S. Lewis, who was the probably preeminent thinker of the last hundred years in the Christian world. He was an author and a poet and an apologist. He says this, to preach Christianity meant primarily to preach this, the resurrection. The resurrection is the central theme of every Christian sermon reported in the book of Acts, so the birth of the church. The resurrection and its consequences were the gospel or the good news which Christians brought. With that in mind, we continue on in John chapter 20. So on that evening, on the first day of the week, while the disciples were together, they had the doors locked because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders. And really, how could they not be? Just two days earlier, their master, their teacher, their friend had been killed by the Jewish leaders for making claims that he was the son of God, that he had come to save people from their sins. And then he was hung on a cross, on a Roman cross to die for the sin of the world. And because the Jewish leaders killed him, Jesus told the disciples earlier on, if they hate me, they're going to hate you. This is self-preservation mode. If they kill Jesus, I need to make sure that we take care of ourselves. And they're still reeling from the thing that Mary has told them. They're still reeling from that moment when they looked into the tomb and they saw the linen neatly stacked. But while the doors were locked and nobody could get in, Jesus came and stood among them. And he says this, peace be with you. After this, he showed them his hands and he showed them his side. And then the disciples were, as the Bible says, overjoyed when they too saw the Lord. Look at what the notice, what is different. They were afraid of the Jewish leaders. And because they have now seen Jesus, their fear turns to overwhelming joy. Put yourself in this position a little bit. Good Friday happens. John witnesses the death of Christ. The rest of the disciples scatter for fear. 
Saturday is quiet and as they contemplate, what it, does this mean now? What are we supposed to do? Who are we now? We're, our master, our friend is gone. Sunday morning, Mary runs to the tomb early weeping and in grief and she sees something that she can't possibly hope to contain inside of her. She runs back to the disciples saying, I'm not sure what I've seen, but he's not there. They run to the tomb, they look, and they're confused as well. She comes back and tells them, I've seen the Lord, and they cannot hope to believe it to be true yet. How could they? (laughs) They hadn't seen him. In that moment, their fears of what could have been possible, their, their hope beyond hope was realized because they have now seen the resurrected Jesus. And he says to them again, peace be with you. Now, this is a significant statement. This is not just Jesus saying, guys, it's okay. You don't have to be afraid. He's saying, I have made peace with God for you. What I have accomplished gives you life. What I have done is the fulfillment of everything that the scriptures have been teaching. Everything that I talked about with you. Everything that we experienced together over the last three years. Everything that I've been proclaiming. It's about this fact. I have come to offer you peace. But peace with God. I've made peace with God for you. So because I have done that as God has sent me into the world to provide peace. Now Jesus says, I am sending you You disciples, I'm sending you in my name, in my authority, in my power. And with that, Jesus, what said is he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. Then he gives them this unique authority. He says to the apostles, if you forgive anyone his sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are withheld. This is a significant statement. This is the only time in the New Testament where somebody is given this kind of authority. Jesus and his disciples, they were his direct representatives on the earth to expand the church, to birth the beginning of the church. And they had this unique and power to go into the world and proclaim things. They had this unique access because they were going in not just the name of Jesus as his representatives, but the power of Jesus to do exactly what Jesus wants to see happen. The forgiveness of their sin. Now Thomas missed out. Thomas wasn't with them. And one of the 12, he was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told Thomas, we've seen Jesus. We saw him. He was here in this room. We've seen the Lord. But Thomas replied to them, unless I see the nail marks and I put my fingers into his hands where those nails were, unless I touch his side where he was speared, he says, I will not believe. This is where we get this phrase of doubting Thomas. I'm sure you've heard this before. I think this is an unfair title for him. Thomas wasn't there Easter night. This is a week later. He's in the room with the disciples. They're explaining these things to him. He's trying to understand what it is that's been going on. And just like they were afraid to accept Mary's testimony that Jesus was raised to life, so he is afraid to accept theirs because what could be worse to be lied to that somebody had conquered death? What could be worse to have your best friend killed on a Roman cross and then to somebody to fabricate this story that he's walking around a new life? No, he couldn't believe it. Because the consequences of, not, of, of it being false and believing it were too severe. 
Put yourself in this position. How terrible would it be if somebody told you the best news that you could possibly think of and then they pulled the rug out from under you? No, it would be a life and death issue for the disciples if the resurrection of Jesus is a fabrication. If it's just some fable, if it's just some fairy tale, if it's, it's just some things that Christians have talked about over, over time, we're, we're hoping beyond hope that it could possibly maybe just might be true. But Thomas says, until I see, I can't believe. And so a week later, in that same upper room again, and Thomas was this time with them, though the doors were locked, the drama plays out again. Jesus came and he stood among them and he said to them again, peace be with you. Thomas is included now. Then we don't have any interaction of Thomas going to Jesus. We don't have any interaction of of what happened in those moments, but I have this sense and I have this belief that Jesus, as soon as he gets to the room, he says, peace be with you, and he calls Thomas over, looking in his eyes. Thomas, come. Receive. Put your fingers here in my hands. Put your hand to my side. And then he says this, stop doubting and believe. Now you see. Now you understand. Now you have the evidences of what it was that everyone else had before you. Mary saw me as I stood with her at the garden tomb. The disciples, they saw me as I came to that upper room. And now, Thomas, I'm including you in this. Don't doubt anymore. You requested to have some sort of evidence. See for yourself. Come and touch and believe. Stop doubting. And honestly... I think that we need to reconsider what doubt is. Sometimes in churches, we get this kind of phraseology, you can't, you shouldn't doubt. It's bad to doubt. You shouldn't doubt. I just reject that outright. I think that it's right to doubt. That when we have doubts, we should lean into them. We should start to think deeply about what that doubt is and then start to look for the evidence to satisfy the doubt. Because if we have a doubt and we're we're telling people, no, you know, you can't doubt. If you doubt, that's a lack of faith. If you have doubt, then you're not trusting God. If you you have doubt, then you, no, no, no. This is Thomas, one of Jesus' closest friends who was hoping beyond hope that it could be true, but until he saw, he wanted to know. And this is what Jesus gives to him. He accepts him in and says, now you don't have to doubt anymore what you hoped beyond hope, what might, could possibly even maybe just a little bit be true. Now you see in full sight. Stop doubting. Now you can believe. And Thomas responded to him, my Lord and my God. This is a significant statement. The Lord, it's not just the same way that Mary said to Jesus, teacher, it's deeper than that. He's saying, you are my master. What you say, I will obey. And the next thing that he says is, and you are my God. Because how could he not be? He's raised from life. He's raised from death to life. He's, he's standing in front of him in, in his perfected glory with holes in his hands and, and a, spear, a spear moment in his side. And he's saying to him, Thomas, come and believe. And Thomas responds in faith saying, I believe now. You're not just, you're not just the teacher. You're exactly who you claim to be. You are God. And Jesus is the only one that could accomplish this. He wasn't willing to accept it on somebody else's word. I'm not asking you to accept this on my word or our word, but Jesus' words. 
That's verse 28 now. In verse 30, it says, Jesus did many other miracles and signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not yet recorded in this book. But these things, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is God's Christ. That he is God's savior. He is God's chosen lamb. He's the son of God. And that by believing in Jesus, you may find life in his name. Now, there's some question between scholars about John's gospel. About Is John referencing the whole book of all the things that he's written when he writes this down? Or is it just the events of the last week as we've celebrated Palm Sunday and Jesus' triumphant entry into Jerusalem, riding on a donkey, fulfilling prophecy? Whether it's the Monday morning of Passover week where Jesus goes into the temple, sees how people are treating God's house, using it as a marketplace and, and with complete and vile misuse of what it is, and he clears the temple in his rage about their unrighteousness. The teachings of John 3, uh, John 13 to 16, as Jesus explains to his disciples in that upper room, this is the things that I'm going to do. You need to wait and pay attention. Whether it's Jesus' high priestly prayer in John 17, where he says, I want them, God, to be unified like you and I are unified. I want my people to be unified in that same way. Whether it's the consequent arrest and trial of Jesus in John 18, whether it's the death of Jesus in John 19 to satisfy God's wrath against sin, or if it's this, the ultimate sign for which we are to believe that Jesus Christ is no longer dead but reigns supreme because he's resurrected to life. These things are given to us so that we may believe and find life in his name. Everything about the Christian faith centers on this. The resurrection of Jesus. The apostle Paul says as much years after this event where he is convinced now because he's seen the resurrected Jesus. Paul, who was against the church, who was doing everything that he could to derail the church and to imprison disciples and to kill them and to get rid of them so that they would continue to stop, they would stop disrupting everything that was going on in their society. Paul, who is the greatest, the greatest evil towards the church, becomes its greatest supporter. He says this, for if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised either. And look at this. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is useless. If Jesus has not been raised, then your faith is futile. It doesn't matter. If Jesus isn't raised, it doesn't matter. Why would we gather together on a Sunday morning if Jesus didn't, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead? If Jesus just died then he's just like any other man who's died. If Jesus just taught a whole bunch of things and was a, was a nice guy and a good teacher and kind of helped people out a bit, but, he, that, but then he died and that was the end of the story, then, then what are we doing here? This, this event is central to our faith. If Christ has been raised, then all of our preaching is useful. If Christ has been raised, then our faith is substantial. We can lean into it. We can trust him in it. Now, some of you here may believe yourself to be a good enough person that God has to accept you based on your own merit and your good works. Others, you may believe that because you've been in church your whole life or you've heard a message once or you've done good things that God will somehow be pleased with your religious obligations. Can I lovingly say to you, please don't trust in yourself. 
unless you believe into Jesus, trusting in his sacrificial death on your behalf, his literal bodily resurrection from the dead. If you don't believe that he is God, if you don't believe that he is the only way that you can be made right with God, that only through Jesus could you find the peace that God wants to offer you, that if you don't believe that Jesus is God's perfect son, unless you're willing to say with John the Baptist, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of all the world. Unless we are willing to say this, to live this, to be completely engulfed in this reality, then we cannot be saved of our sin because the resurrection of Jesus is everything. Without the resurrection of Jesus, we cannot be made right with God. We will never be able to earn God's merit and favor. Only Jesus can do this. You might be thinking, well, pastor, that seems all well and good. That seems like a a nice message. That seems like a pretty intense thing to say to a whole bunch of people. But let me say this to you. Like Thomas, we don't have to believe without evidence. The evidence for the resurrection of Jesus is actually overwhelming. He was seen by 500 people at one time. Did you know that? Did you know that Jesus' disciples, after he was raised, were so bold in their preaching, they were imprisoned, flogged, beaten, and tortured? Did you know that most of the disciples were killed as martyrs of the faith, not willing to recant that they believed that Jesus was the Son of God, that he died in their place to to save them from their sins, and was resurrected to new life and walked amongst them for 40 days? They believed that so much that they were willing to go to their grave as the the marker, the stake of which they would live their lives. Rational people don't die for lies. Why would they? No, 2,000 years later, here's the greatest evidence of it. The message of the gospel is still the most winsome, inclusive, and beautiful message that the world has ever known. And billions upon billions of people have been radically transformed by the message of Christ crucified and raised to life. Don't take my word for it. (laughs) Just look at all of human history. Now, for those who are observant, I did leave out one verse. John 20, verse 29 says this, Then Jesus told Thomas, Because you have seen me, you have believed but blessed are those who have not seen and still believe. It's not that he's shunning Thomas. He's not putting him aside and saying, you're not valuable. You can't be part of this kingdom. It's not that I don't have plans for ministry for you. It's not that I'm not asking you to do amazing things in my name to preach the kingdom of God and extend this peace of God to other people. But those who have not seen and still believed, there's a special blessing that God has for them. So we should never shun those who have doubt, but we should walk with them thoughtfully and encourage their, in their, their concerns and in their hope for evidence. Doubt is not the antithesis of faith. Doubt is a regular part of faith. But Jesus says something astonishing. You are blessed. Those who living 2,000 years after the events of this weekend, that you believe, that you trust that Jesus is who he says that he is. Don Carson is a Canadian theologian. He says this, Blessed then are those who, while we cannot share in Thomas's experience of sight, we haven't seen the resurrected Jesus, but who in part, they read of Thomas's experience, they can come to share Thomas's faith. 
See, the resurrection of Jesus is everything. This is the house of cards. If this falls, it doesn't matter. If this falls, why be here? But because he did, because he is out of the grave, because he has transformed lives the world over for thousands of years, because the evidence stacked against a fabrication is so incredibly massive, we can celebrate today the greatest day where the greatest person who has ever done the greatest thing to give us the greatest gift be made possible. This is Jesus. The Jesus of the Bible who lays his life down for you. The Jesus who takes his life up again because he's proving his innocence and his ability to give you new life. Will you believe this today? You have to. This is the call of the scriptures. This is the call of the gospel. Don't doubt anymore. You don't have to. But if you do, bring your doubts with you and believe. Let's pray. Father, I would simply ask that you would do the miracle of bringing dead hearts to life in Christ right now in this moment. That those who have been disappointed by trying to do better or trying to be more, not being enough or whatever that looks like for them, that that narrative in their heart would be rewritten because Jesus is resurrected. He's alive and well, that he's doing things in our world that we're not preaching some ancient message or fairy tale that has no bearing on our lives today. Because Jesus is resurrected, because he knows our names, because he shares unconditional love to us, we can have faith and trust in you to provide for our every need. So if you're here today, friends, if you're here today and you are feeling God calling you, the tug on your heart, the uncomfortable posture and position of your heart and your spirit in this moment, that's God calling you, beckoning you to believe, to trust in him. You have simply to acknowledge that you're a sinner who's separate from God to understand that it is Jesus alone who satisfies God's wrath against sin and pays for its penalty. And that you would give your life in service of King Jesus who reigns supreme, who's alive and well because of this event that we celebrate. 2,000 years, year after year, celebrating this reality that you are no longer dead. The grave is empty. The veil is torn and we have life in your name, as John says. So today, would you believe and put your faith in Jesus, trusting in him to do for you what only he can do? Doubts and all. Pray it in Jesus, your glorious name. Amen.